Welcome to episode six of the Mark Cameron Show. We have conversations with people making their mark, discover how they do it and what the future of their work is. My guests this week are Brianna Pegado and Catherine Snow. I met them at the Codebase offices in Edinburgh. Brianna is the executive director of Creative Edinburgh and a co-founder of Pogo. Catherine Snow is a designer and design researcher, currently a service designer for Tesco and also a co-founder of Pogo. Brianna, Catherine, welcome. This is great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so what is design thinking? Way to go straight in there. (laughs) So the best way I would describe design thinking, it's a concept, it's a practice, it's a set of tools that people use to organize their thoughts and problem solve and potentially come up with a new idea. I say process that people use because for a creative person, everyone has their own creative process. So they might not have a language around it or a way to articulate or describe it. But design thinking is something that came into being probably about 10 years ago, particularly coined by a service design agency and company called IDEO. And IDEO kind of took it and used it and kind of systematize it into a process or a way of doing things. Alongside IDEO in the US, you had the Design Council, the British Design Council, which about 15 years ago came up with this concept of the design double diamond. And this is literally two diamonds that are aligned next to each other and it explains or tries to articulate a four-part process that is design thinking. So you start by defining the problem, you explore it. I can't remember, there are four steps that all start with a D. So the reason why I say it like this, and I'm trying to give you a bit of a background, particularly when you look at a product like an Apple product, Steve Jobs would talk about designing for humans or human-centered design, this whole idea of designing something so that it makes sense to a human being, that it's intuitive, but also that was a process that Apple would go through. So I'd say the fundamental principles of design thinking are first off, you might have a problem you're trying to solve. Let's say you want to design a chair. Someone comes to you like a client and says, I need a chair. Instead of going, great, we'll make you a chair, you're gonna take a step back and go, do you need something to sit on? Do you need something that aesthetically Mm. looks nice? Do you need something that holds you up or holds an object up? And you start unpacking and defining what the actual problem is and then go through a process that allows you to come up with a design and you can prototype it. So it can be changed, it can be adapted. You go through the process over and over again until you arrive kind of at something that's actually needed Mm -hmm. rather than assumed to be needed. And without going too much further, because I don't want to take up too much time with this, design thinking is something that I think has really been adapted. You could even say um, taken on as a solution to the world's problems and has really been I'd say in some ways co-opted by the private sector maybe as a process a creative process to come up with the most innovative products and services right. whereas an artist or a creative person probably doesn't even know what design thinking is and they would just say it's their creative process yeah. so that's why I say design thinking is a process that people use rather than a creative process that a creative person uses because it helps us unlock our creativity and there's certain elements to it exercises you use ways of thinking structures to meetings and how you adapt things to get to not good but many options and the mm. idea is that you don't close down your thinking at the start you kind of brainstorm which is quite an old school term many different ideas nothing is kind of wrong or impossible you're almost using kind of principles of divergent thinking. So really expanding out and thinking about the possibilities. And then you start to look at maybe what some of the parameters might be that need to be narrowed down. Like back to that chair example, yes, you might've agreed that you need a chair to sit on, not a chair to hold something else up or because it looks nice. Hmm. Nice. So yeah, it's a term I came across when I took a little trip over to Stanford in February and uh, was just really curious about what goes on over there and what was informing the students thinking in that time and probably therefore quite a lot of innovative companies and things so I noticed in the bookshop they just had this entire section called design thinking and um, was curious as to how how it impacts people or how has it impacted organizations uh, that that we're part of or that we experience. I think Stanford as well is kind of the one of the founding 
forebears of design thinking. As soon as you said Stanford, I kind of smirked and smiled <laughs> because the Stanford D School or Design School really coined this and kind of, I think, brought it to prominence as well. So you've, I mentioned IDEO, I mentioned the British Design Council, but the D School at Stanford has been a real kind of proponent mm. and expander of it. I think anyone interested, I would recommend reading Change by Design, which is written by Tim Brown. And he okay. was sort of one of the people to formalise design thinking at IDEO. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, how it's this, why it's been so popular and, and how it's sort of achieved what it has been this balance between divergent and convergent thinking. That's why it's been visualised as a little mm. And I think um, in that book, it's sort of apparent how, for him at least, it was a way of getting a playfulness into the mm. process and almost legitimizing that playfulness um, and that's something that we we can forget to experiment or, or have the kind of the resources or give the time to experimentation and mm -hmm. that's I think something design thinking does really really well and why it's led to great results and, and be adopted so widely is because it, it allows for experimentation um, and makes you give those resources to that yeah um, so I, I think I first experienced uh, yourselves and you were launching a povo at the time which we can go on to talk about but we we sat down in a room around a desk and you like got us writing out about a hundred post-its and I remember thinking I just had fun for like two or three hours as you <laughs> came in and, and myself and one of my colleagues were thinking around a, a creative project a music project and it was like you just sat down and said let's have fun let's just throw ideas around for ages and at the end of it felt like we'd got clearer on what we were excited about that we'd had a good time and uh and even two years on i was reflecting today like Is i still have two a, years i think so. oh, oh i think goodness. so maybe you're a year right. and a half no, yeah you're right, right. Yeah. i'm just I'm shocked by that. almost two years on yeah. i i reflect oh there was an experience i had which was i've got a creative idea don't really know how to get out in the world but then a bunch of people came and we we played around with thoughts and we face some of the fears that we could have and there was something pretty pretty special about it for me so I really appreciated that and I can think even now looking at the same project the clarity or the desire to get it over the line probably came from some of those conversations like that day so how how does how does playing around with people's ideas like that make such an impact on them I think when you, thanks for sharing that, because we haven't actually asked you how the project has moved yeah. on, and I'm really happy to hear that that was, I, mean, I don't want to say pivotal, but such a, you know, important experience that yeah. helped you ground your thoughts. And I think back to what you, that question you've just asked, I always think of Simon Sinek and his TED talk on Start With Why, even mm -hmm. though that's not what it was named. And I think the reason why it's so effective and so important um, is because it does create a framework that drives you, allows you to drive and move forward with your purpose. And I think sometimes when we're trying to problem solve an idea or work something out, we try and focus on the logistics or the details without starting with why are we doing this? What are the values that are driving this? Who are we trying to reach? And I think that's why it's so effective. But hmm. what Catherine was talking about in terms of these tools that help you unlock your playfulness and creativity, it gives you a container to do that gives you tools to really get down into the reasons behind something, but like really helps you expand and tap into that playfulness. The sticky notes that you talked about, those 100 sticky notes, I think part of that process is so important because it's rapid fire, you mm -hmm. know, um, free, free flowing, and you're really trying to get people not to labor on anything, but just allow for whatever comes up to be written down and to be validated. I think that's why it works so well. And how it unlocks play for people in that process. Mm -hmm. And I think it's constant evaluation um, because it's very easy to view it as a linear process, but I think we would encourage people not to do that. Um, but as you move through each stage, there's, a, there's an element of evaluation, okay? So we've expanded, how are we gonna converge? And if we're gonna expand mm. again, how are we gonna do that? And I think that's actually really poignant in creative practice as well. Um, I think we sort of in that initial session we kind of expanded as wide as we could yeah and so we kind of took as many ideas as we possibly could um and as you say looking for the meaning and taking that step back rather than just going straight into something yeah um and there's a there's a really cool 
design anthropologist who says it kind of describes design as a practice of turning values into experiences mm. and so i think design thinking is like in some ways a nice way of tapping into that like what are the values that are, that are driving this and yeah what are we actually trying to achieve in the experience because that's kind of what you will end up with in some form right um, oh, so how do we I mean, that's so good. Is like, how do we turn values into experiences? Exactly. How, I don't know how we do it, but um, I think that's, in some ways, that's the thread of what design is in any form. Right. Um, yeah, true. Okay. I love that. Um, I, and it was, it was really fun. I remember being in it and pushing around these ideas and also having quite a lot of admiration to be like, wow, people stepping out into a creative industry and really sticking the next out and saying, we want to do something with this, uh, with people who are, excited that we, we we just met how did you both land in these creative roles uh what was the about your journey to get into what you do now i know that i've always been creative and thankfully grew up in a family where that was really valued but when it came to a career a lifestyle university i was really discouraged not to pursue that and my father in particular never finished his university degree because he grew up in a in a during kind of a civil war in sub-saharan africa and angola but one of the things he did do of many was actually train as an architect and an interior architect mm. so i grew up with like architectural plans interior design plans always spread out all over the kitchen table my mom worked in politics but had been a dancer my grandfather was retired by the time i was born but was a thespian and recorded for the blind and dyslexic had a great voice my grandmother was an english teacher i was surrounded by all of this stuff but to kind of answer your question i got to university was told you know don't go to art school you need to do something that will generate some kind of money <laughs> and i really missed it because i had been in a rock band i'd painted i danced my whole life i was a creative person and got to university and really felt like wow like after a year or so I feel stifled and I feel like a part of me is missing and I remember being around a lot of other people who felt similarly and out with their degrees did creative things photography ran club nights organized events did fundraisers went into fashion and ended up all going into that after university mm -hmm. actually after they got their first degree but I think the key thing was it was always there. I could never run away from it. And my first role out of university, I was elected president of the Students Association at Edinburgh University. And in that year, I'd spent time talking to a lot of people about what they wanted and set up the Edinburgh Student Arts Festival as a social enterprise. And I didn't really mean to set it up, but I did and was able to facilitate a space for other people to be creative. And over four years, we worked with about a thousand young people and emerging artists to give them a platform to show their work, to collaborate, to experiment and play. But I was still missing that. And I think throughout my journey of running that festival, it wasn't generating any money or an income for me. So I freelanced all over the place. And one of the first things I remember doing, you just talked about sticking your neck out. Remember my first freelance job, I was terrified. I'd left a job in the third sector that just was not right for me and had left it without anything else to go on to. And I was living with my partner at the time, so I didn't have to worry about rent. And I remember sitting there and looking at him. I was like, what am I going to do? And he was like, well, why don't you just start freelancing? You know, you have experience in events, your background, sustainable development, you do project management. This is all stuff I was thinking about anyway. And I was like, well, how do I even start? And he's like, well, if you don't ask, you don't get. So just start asking people. And I remember I sent an email to the very organization I work for now. Um, and they were organizing their fourth birthday and awards party. And our number eight is coming up in two weeks time. Mm. And I knew that the organization was run by two people. One person had just left and he was the event coordinator. And I emailed the director at the time and I said, look, you need any help I can help you out for the next month and she was like oh yeah that'd be great what's your freelance rate and that's where the, the next dilemma came up I was like I don't know what my rate is where do, how do you find out and I started emailing people but it just was a series of events that I didn't plan mm -hmm. I kind of always had to find my way I think when you're a freelancer you really have to be bold and take risks and hold your nerve because part of the issue and part of the stress or part of what goes with being a freelancer is you manage your own time, you set your own rates, but you have to go through lots of periods of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And I do know and remember that I've never gone more than a month or maybe six weeks without work. Mm -hmm. 
But being in a position where you're constantly thinking about what's coming next, having to hold out, having not to take something else in the meantime because you're worried, having faith and trust that something will come up. A lot of freelancing in Edinburgh in particular and in Scotland and the arts is word of mouth, yeah. is people referring you on. I've applied for open calls for work and not gotten them. All of my work has come from people I know and mm -hmm. conversations I've had. So that's been part of my journey. And at some other point, I could talk about the things that I've actually done in that freelancing world. But it all happened because I left another role. I was running this festival. I needed an income. And I really didn't want to work for one person nine to five. I had too many interests. Mm -hmm. I almost saw that part of my life as an apprenticeship. I wanted to be an apprentice in so many different parts of the arts and creative industry so I could understand it. So I went from theater to design to visual art to sustainable kind of um, consulting agencies because I didn't want to be working just in one little bit of the sector. I needed to understand it. And I think that comes on to Povo in terms mm, of mm -hmm. our way of thinking. And I'm quite a systems, strategic, big picture thinker yeah. and to understand the details of things I need to understand and map out how it all interconnects. Yeah. Brilliant. Uh, yeah, I was kind of similar in some ways. I guess I came from an incredibly creative family and we were always making things uh, or making music and as a sort of collective group of four or as me and my sister or me alone. Um, and I guess, yeah, I kind of had two creative threads that kind of were always with me. I don't think I particularly saw them as creative they were just part of my way of being I guess as a person and yeah. so one side of that was music and the other side was making things um, and I did kind of do art and stuff through school but I think I always found just I was interested in things how we interact with things what experiences those build and like the context that they create around them um, so that led me to study product design and I sort of found my feet there. I think it sort of found me before I was ready, maybe, mm -hmm. or really knew what I wanted. Um, and yeah, and then did a residency year in creative informatics, which is where we kind of grew Povo. Uh, okay. Um, okay, so t tell us about Povo and how it emerged and where is it now? And um, I think kind of feeding back into the whole design thinking thing, we had been in various scenarios, the three of us individually, so myself, Brianna, and our friend Linda, um, where we'd been using design thinking. And we were sort of thinking, okay, what is beyond design thinking? Like, mm -hmm. there were great merit, merits to it. We loved that it was mm -hmm. this process and that it sort of de-skilled the designer in a way. Like, it, we understood that the designer doesn't have the answers in that process. It's about getting the answers from the people who are going to be involved. Um, so we liked those two elements, but we were sort of thinking, yeah, what what exists beyond this? And can we sort of design a consultancy in some way or design a project that can look to answer that a little bit or explore that? Um, I think as well, design thinking was something we were unpicking and unpacking. And back to what Catherine was saying about de-skilling the designer, I was coming at it from a background of social science, activism and sustainable development and I felt with our coming together there were two product designers that came from a very design-based practice and I was bringing something else into it and I learned so much from working with them mm. because product design isn't new but it's not something that many people know about okay. even service design is new I think service design has grown as its own discipline and we can talk about that a little bit but has been bolstered by design thinking um, and Back to what Catherine was saying, she and Linda became designers in residence in the School of Design Informatics at the University of Edinburgh. Now, that's a whole other topic. Design informatics is new. It's looking at how data influences design, and that's a very reductive way of talking about it. Yeah. But Edinburgh University has been pioneering informatics, which is more about data, data science, and looking at trends and all sorts. But the School of Design Informatics is really marrying design with data. And... What I think is also happening from my background in sustainable development, so my degree was the first of its kind at Edinburgh University and was looking at how do we approach the environmental crisis and sustainability issues from a social, economic and environmental perspective. Right. And I was also really interested in divinity, religion and ethics. So that was, I designed that into my degree. Yeah. But back to what I've just said about designing, 
design is something that is so fundamental to our lives. Everything that we do and interact with has been designed by someone. The streets that we walk on, the food that we eat, the landscape and environment we're in, mm. the clothes we wear. And I think Catherine and Linda showed me this through working with them in their process. But I think something that brings the three of us together is that we have a real reverence and respect for design, but also see its limitations and want to unpick it and unpack it. Because I think, fortunately or unfortunately, design has been siloed or seen in a certain way. When actually designing is just the process of creating and making and building. Mm -hmm. And you can, just talking about de-skilling the designer, you can de-design something. <laughs> you know, the process of unpacking something or destroying it is also design. Right. So it's actually a process of creation. Yeah. And I think when we look at ideas and values, Catherine and Linda were in the School of Design Informatics. I was their chief collaborator for a year. And <laughs> we were exploring exactly what Catherine was saying. How do you set up something? Because we don't want to call it a consultancy. It was a project. Mm -hmm. It could have been called a collective. We were struggling with the words, but how do you design a process to engage with people that want to engage with their own creativity? Yes. And how do you okay. do that in a way that doesn't lead with outcomes and outputs, but literally creates a container to facilitate them to go on a journey to understand their creative process? Now, design thinking has been a toolkit for that, mm -hmm. has been a process. But we found it, and me in particular, I found it quite problematic because design thinking is really elitist. If you don't know what it is, if you don't know the principles behind it, if you don't know what a sticky note is or these words like iterate, you're going to iterate and prototype something yeah. like what is that, you know? So it's, it's about t trying something, building it, testing it, analyzing it, deconstructing it. But even the language around design thinking and the fact that it's so high level and it's, it can be attributed to Apple and huge products and lots of profits and growth, I found really annoying yeah. and quite difficult because actually creativity, everyone has the potential for, excuse me, and everyone has the ability to engage with it. It was, and the way I saw it, because we, we also talked about how the three of us engaged with this idea differently and how we all see Povo differently. Mm -hmm. So a multiplicity of viewpoints, approaches and ideas were embraced in our process which made it quite tricky to pin down right because we're all embracing our different perspectives on what we were doing mm -hmm. which was fundamental to our way of working but mm -hmm. basically comes back to how do we actually create something that doesn't lead that holds space and helps unravel yeah and i think it was also about could we work with each client or each project to make a process that was specific for them not trying to use frameworks all the time um, which became quite interesting. And I guess two other principles of Povo that kind of developed was I had written my dissertation on play just the year before, and I think that was all quite in our minds, and, dis and Linda had written hers on failure. So we had these two concepts that were quite fresh, and both of those are about how you value process over outcome, and how mm. something can be done for its own merit, not for the merit of something that's going to come out of it. Mm. Um, and so I think those were very at the forefront of just what we were doing and the three of us were at a point I guess in our lives we didn't really know what we wanted to do but mm -hmm. we knew that there was something in, in the way that we the three of us worked together which was kind of special in the way mm -hmm. that we mm -hmm. like the intuition that we had between each other so we kind of just grew Povo out of what can this be with mm -hmm. some of these ideas mm -hmm. and I think that's kind of how it sits still we don't really know what it is or what it will be right. but it's it's just about us working things out and exploring things and sometimes exploring those with other people through yeah. projects yeah. or sometimes just exploring them through like us having a coffee like, mm -hmm. um, wow I like that you're pushing at some of the opposite tensions that other people perhaps have carved up much harder than yourself so you seem to have something around convergent and divergent thinking you're very aware of that process you have something around we're in a process and a journey to design something that potentially has an outcome and we're trying to weigh up the merit of each part and just where you are in that. Um, I'm interested how having three of you involved keeps you from landing in your either-or camps quite often because that's certainly what strikes you is there's a, a trinity <laughs> about it that, that is quite compelling and seems to let you change direction quickly and, and not land somewhere for too long it's a starting point 
that's what came up when I was listening to Catherine because we approached it as being a starting point. But I think all three of us also talked about the areas we wanted to explore more. So mm. we talked about a research side, which was about kind of this holding space and exploring concepts and ideas from a research focus. We looked at a social side. How could our projects have a social impact or benefit people that don't have access or have an outcome? And the third was, cons was it the consultancy side? Yeah, or the lab. Oh yes, it was the lab. So there was research, there was social, and there was the lab. And I think the lab was about client work, but just making things for the sake of making them and experimenting. So I almost think that those three parts of POVO kind of embody and symbolize the three of us, mm -hmm. where we were also saying that depending on where POVO sits, with us in our lives, we would be fluid and flexible about that. But even the way of working with us shifted. So we had a system, or we described it this way. If you worked with one of us, you got a povo sapien. If you worked with two of us, it was duo povo. And if you worked with three of us, it was octopovo. So you one, you'd get, if you worked with one of us, you'd get the brains of the other two. There was always like okay. this distilling and, and sense of, you'd still get the brain power of the three of us, but you had one of us or two of us or all three focusing in on what your process was. Right. That's brilliant. Yeah. I think it was just also fun. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We knew, because we'd worked on little projects together through a collective that I run and Edinburgh Street Pascal when you were running it. And there was just, we always seemed to have fun. And I think, because we had separate kind of freelance careers at that point, mm -hmm. um, there were some projects that each of us had been offered that were sort of bigger than just ourselves. So it was all just like, all of these kind of things colliding that at that point that just kind of, we thought, okay, maybe let's do something that's yeah. collaborative and, right. and just see what happens. And I think it will always be there somehow. Yeah. And, and so many people love the idea of a more creative career or they love the idea of turning their passion into a profession. Um, but I'm interested, like, what are you really getting out of it? If, if we're to say, like, why, why do you do what you do? Why have you gone down this route? And what purpose does it really fulfill for you? For me, and this sounds huge, but I do give it this much weight, I see the creative sector and the creative industries as the future and the way I'd like to work. And I see it as a symbol of progress or regression, depends on how you view the world. Yeah, nice. um, in terms mm. of humans and how we relate to one another, because the biggest thing I've noticed within the creative sector, particularly here in Scotland, because it is very place-based, is this idea of collaboration over competition. I don't find down south it's the same and okay. I find up here or in other environments that if you're working in the creative sector and creative industries, not only are you working with people you care about, taking risks, experimenting, but you're all sharing ideas and resources and there isn't this sense of competition, even if you're in a company or a business that's making a profit. Um, and back to my sustainable development background, I do see flexible working, man managing your own time working and not within a nine to five. If you're a freelancer, you can work at night, can work in the morning, it doesn't matter. It depends on when you're most productive. But what I get out of it is really seeing materialize the type of world I'd like to live in, which is collaborative, sharing resources, um, creative, open-minded, sharing, and also innovative because people are really creating things out of nothing, out of limited resources, sharing knowledge and coming from the third sector and particularly social enterprise in Scotland because that's how the Edinburgh Student Arts Festival was set up. We are really world leading in social enterprise alternative business models that are mm -hmm. driven by people and the environment and social issues over profit and I've been able to, I'm so grateful that not only have I been able to witness it, I've been able to be part of what I see as some people could call it the second enlightenment in Scotland. Like we really are driving the way when it comes to future business models that have a better impact, softer footprint on the planet. Right. It's pretty 
pick. I think <laughs> <laughs> mine is maybe a little bit simpler but equally strange, I guess. I'm just fascinated by how we experience things, I guess is what it comes mm. down to. And I think that led me to making experiences and forming experiences and then now into more of like questioning those experiences, how we discuss those experiences, develop them, improve them. Um, yeah, and I think that's led me down kind of researchy paths as well, mm -hmm. um, down the kind of anthropology route and um, culture and temporality and all these kind of things. I'm just, I think that's the, the mm -hmm. centre point. Wow. So, yeah, one of the things that you've been pushing into has been perception and how we understand, like you say, how we experience things. What uh, What's your understanding of perception and coming off the back of how we think about the future, how we think about design and how we think about experience? Uh, that's a good question. I guess perception is fascinating um, and just how we base our ideas of the world on past experiences and um, how we kind of fabricate our reality just subconsciously. Um, I think what that means in terms of like design is really interesting. Um, yeah, I don't really, what do you sort of, what were you kind of, Mm, yeah, good question. <laughs> uh, I'm curious, so perception is one of the most useful areas to take a look at in your life, I, I think. Mm. And I, in my own life, to take the opportunity to take one step outside of your own lenses on the world and the way that you make meaning of the world, how you carve it up, to have the opportunity to think about how you think about things and to notice what you notice seems deeply, deeply beneficial to relationships, to your sense of self, to your own sense of consciousness. Um, I think perception has been the most useful way to get at that. So, um, I, I, so I'm curious as to how does perception um, impact the way that we can design the future? How does perception um, help us think about the future? I think it's a really important tool because we can play with it. Um, mm. And in that I mean because of the way that we draw on past experience and stuff in our perceptions and then how we can break out of that to then be in a, a space of almost sort of true conscious perception where we're experiencing something for the first time um, and I guess what I mean by that is like how we relate to what is yet to kind of exist in the future whatever that means we kind of jump into a conscious perception space because we're not sure our sort of image of past and present no longer match up because we're in a space that we haven't experienced before um, and in that we move into kind of what you can describe as a virtual space mm -hmm. where kind of qualities and things exist differently and that's where we become into a, like a space of possibility or potentiality where things are suddenly wide open because we don't know how to relate to them yet um, and that is a really interesting space to kind of yeah. to move into. How do you help people move into that or kick people into mm. that? It's a real challenge um, because we're bound to our reality in some ways so it's mm. how we how you encourage someone to inhabit that space so they can go deeper and deeper into that. So I just did a piece of research, which Brianna was a participant of actually, um, where I created some some objects which didn't exist. They weren't real objects, but they were sort of meant to be tools for dialogue that you could um, deliberately make sort of stimulate your imagination from. Mm -hmm. um, so it's how we have a almost like a, a gateway from reality that helps us move into imagination and whether mm. we can ground that in things that exist or don't exist and how like, important ambiguity is there because then we can start sort of being creative and being imaginative or projecting ideas. Mm. Um, it's a challenging thing to move into and um, there's a lot of really interesting writing on it and sort of um, this idea of like time spaces, so how do we orientate ourselves to the future? Is that like in speculation? Is that in anticipation? Mm -hmm. And does the future exist more in those moments than it ever does anywhere else? Because the future does and doesn't exist. Basically. Yeah, okay. Um, wow. I, I think the artist and the creative person as well is able to construct these futures and bring people into that space, which is their own perception of the future. 
um, in ways that maybe other people from other practices, backgrounds, sectors, areas can't. Because if you mm. think about an artist constructing an exhibition or taking on a journey with their photography or their paintings or what they've designed, there's a narrative behind it. There might may or may not be a reason for its existence, but you go to a film, you go to an exhibition, you go to the theater and you're transported into a different world. Yeah. And the potentiality of that is that it could be a future world. It could be a future existence. It's almost like you're on a timeline of their perception when you consent and agree to being taken on that journey. Mm. And back to the design thinking side of things, I think that is a tool and process that you can use. But I think sometimes a person needs to be deconstructed, delayered, asked to step back to step out of their current perception of their world or their understanding of their self in order to go on that explorative, speculative journey. Um, and I think about the three of us again in Povo and you were talking about, you know, your dissertation on play and Linda's on failure. And I think also something that was quite crucial to bring us together is I'd experienced quite a serious point of failure in my life with the arts festival because I, I, I think about this a lot and I know that before this podcast we were talking about narratives of ourself but that is quite a turning point in my life I had mm. this moment two years ago two and a half years ago where for all intents and purposes the business failed our funding was cut and pulled out and okay. I experienced you know failure if you want to call it that in my relationship I had to move out of my flat I yeah. was dealing with financial problems health problems everything that could have happened exploded at once and that story is 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 has the, I guess the situation has ended, but the way I talk about it is constantly shifting because my perception of that is you know what lessons did I learn? Yeah. What did that enable me to do after that? And also thinking about my relationship to myself, my pace of working. I talked about how I was running the festival and doing all this freelance work and really overworked and working crazy work weeks. But I think coming to Povo and coming to this experience having gone through a process that really made me step back from my lived experience, analyze it, reassess it, renegotiate my relationship to my work, to my creative practice, to my creativity was quite crucial. So though I think the two of them were maybe exploring that theoretically and personally, I had had that lived experience of failure and what it meant to be playful again or to kind of re-engage with something that I'd already defined in a certain way but I needed to redefine and unpack that I think perception was coming into my creative practice and my relationship to myself and I think our relationship to each other mm-hmm. within mm-hmm. POVO. Yeah. yeah, I think we were all in kind of weird places at that point, yeah. like just trying to work things out. And just going back to the, I guess, this future and creative practice, I think that the amazing thing that creativity has is that we can present uh, an answer of the future, of a future, because it's a plural thing. So we can give people, whether it's in a sci-fi production or something, something to experience and perceive. Mm -hmm. That's, um, I guess, going back to the whole design thing, it's it's designed of a different set of values to that of reality. And that is a really interesting way, because then we're given something about the future to discuss and we can see what we want to change in our lives now so we don't get to that point or, mm, mm. Um, or so many other things that it helps us reveal. Yeah. And I think it's the same with us. It's giving you something to react to, to understand, to experience. Um, I love how you've seen that design and creativity give people uh, some kind of map to make meaning of the world of a future that they can either run towards or play with um perhaps as a alternative to anxiety about the future which you know there's a huge um challenge around people experiencing anxiety just now in very deep ways and uh, i heard it recently that uh, anxiety often works by an exposure to something malevolent uh, that occurs in your life that just takes the bottom out from you and anxiety is almost in relation to how naive you were about that experience happening and how much expectation you had on that. So we would understand that if we lived in a region such as Scotland and it pours with rain, you don't have enormous anxiety about the rains coming because we have significant expectation of that. Whereas if we are in trusted relationships and we don't expect a betrayal or or something chaotic there then the, the level of anxiety is heightened because um 
we were not expecting of it. Um, so is there, is there something here in like when we think about the future and designing and creating possibilities that this could give us collectively a way to explore the future in a way that reduces anxiety or that channels anxiety into, as you see, possibility, speculation, wild ideas, sci-fi? Yes, I think so. And just reflecting on what you've said, I, I think the three of us have all experienced or all experienced anxiety ourselves. And mm. I look at my creative journey and my career and the work that I do alongside my journey with anxiety. Mm-hmm. And back to what you were saying about narratives and perception, you know, I've, I've worked with a therapist on and off for 10 years. I'm actually going after our session mm. tonight. Um, and just thinking about that what you're saying about the unexpected or our expectations and reality not matching up or there being some kind of trauma or some kind of intervention that takes place that shakes your foundations yes we're living in an age of heightened anxiety millennials and generation z in particular are dealing with this we know that there are more diagnosed cases if you can call that call it that of ecological anxiety Mm. we have a lot of challenges that are being explored but yes I do think that design design thinking play creative processes Mm -hmm. allow us to model futures that we can create that might design our way out of crisis Mm. I know that when you look at psychotherapy you can use role play you can use um, cognitive behavioral therapy to change your mindset to change your behaviors Uh, trauma therapy you know you might have a, a trauma trigger you might have a I can't think of the term but you might have a trigger and you you know you take a step back from that and go okay what story am I telling myself around this experience what am I expecting to happen based on bad past experiences is this the reality right now or is this something that a programmed response a response that I'm having that is actually not equating to reality so yes I do think we can utilize design we can utilize playful spaces safe containers with the right tools Mm -hmm. to allow people to envision futures that can be whatever you want them to be and I think it's a really important and positive tool that said I think that safe space and creating that space that allows people to explore that without judgment or with judgment but creating a space to have that conversation where a person doesn't feel judged but an idea might be interrogated is really fundamental and really important Mm. Yeah, and I think it's about how we think of this idea of future. And because the future is in perception, it's as much part of it as present and past. And it's not a linear thing, it's completely in flux and it's messy. And I think we've got to kind of grab hold of this idea of future just as a concept and let's play with it, let's like interact with it, let's see what it is. And like, there's lots of movements at the moment about this idea of rehearsing the future. Mm -hmm. Can we actually get it right? (laughs) <laughs> by thinking about it more consciously rather than just kind of trundling along into it. Yeah, and uh, quite a few experiences that um, different coaching models or, uh, I mean, coaching models up to VR do is that they almost seem to transition an individual from imagination to giving them some kind of experience where it then registers in memory. So mm. I was hearing that some of the latest VR experiences, people come out of them and they might have a dream about it, but they don't remember, oh, I was having a VR thing. They have the memory of, oh, I was actually in that place. Wow. Mm. And and it's printing in the wow. memory part as if they've been there and they've lived in that. Um, or we, we might help people imagine uh, a preferred future on the basis that um, one person's statement was, your life works to the extent that you live for the hope of a preferred future. And if you walk people into their vision of that multiple times, the more that you're doing that, the, the more it's transitioning from a creative impression into memory. And it's recalled every time they go to the future, they're recalling it. Uh, wow. And so that's really interesting. Yeah. Mm. And, and then people, as they start to move toward that, are moved with a lot more resource uh, because they're, they're moving it from memory of lived experience. Mm. Wow. Um, and, and starting that so it's fascinating how design creativity could channel us I love that idea rehearse the future see where it goes and when you pull that then into some of the experiences that you're 
standing for now and some of the ways you want to impact um, the world. How, how do you get on with that? You, you were talking, Brianna, a bit about um, the challenges around, um, I think it wasn't uh, inclusivity, it was mm. um, within the design frame uh, and inequality mm-hmm. in arts and creative industries. Mm-hmm. What, what's going on there? Yeah, it's really interesting because, of course, information is more ready, readily available than it's ever been. We have the internet, we have small computers in our phones if we have access to smartphones. Um, but definitely in the UK, given austerity, given budget cuts, we're dealing with increased inequality within the arts. So there was a report that came out earlier this year called Panic, It's an Arts Emergency, and it was a research study conducted by the University of Edinburgh, Create London, and another university down south that was looking at, okay, sure, we have all of this access to resource and creativity, but who is being left out of this picture from a creative careers and professional side of things? Um, it looked particularly at people from working class backgrounds and BAME backgrounds and women. And if you look across the sector, there's a lot of research done around um, who's in the creative sector quite often if you're in the creative sector you know someone that was already in it so again there's that question of access and and can you you can't see you can't be what you can't see um mm. particularly within women the arts is actually quite dominated by women particularly from a museums and galleries background visual arts but most of the time in most sectors film tv um, advertising, you're looking at less than 20% of people from working class backgrounds, BAME backgrounds, and and women as well. Wow. So we're really seeing this increase over the last five to 10 years, and it's getting worse, and we don't necessarily have pathways to address this, because if funding's been cut to the arts, and the arts are already so strapped for money, there's a lot of issue here around how we create opportunities. So apprenticeships might be part of that, but if you literally can't afford to work in the arts without either being supported by your family, mm-hmm. having another source of income, having a place to stay, it's really, people are being squashed in the middle and the arts are really white, middle-class, able-bodied, cisgendered, um, straight, Christian, you know, or atheist, I shouldn't put that in the same category, but there is a real persona of the person in the arts. That means we're losing a diversity of opinion, Mm. of perception, and ideas. So we are actually facing a real crisis in the arts and creative industries. And what's interesting that's happening alongside that is loads of money is being invested in tech and innovation, data science, particularly in Edinburgh, but when it comes to the traditional arts, which is where a lot of creative ideas incubate and where people start off before they go into these other types of the creative industries, there's a real scarcity and lack there. Mm. And what, what do you think stops people from just, from just getting at it and finding it's their passion and pushing into it? Is it the perception of the requirement of finance and it how, is, how do you get some past that? It is it is that like I, I I think that it is expensive in some ways in terms of costs in terms of time in terms of nerve. I think actually we need to be more honest about what it means to work in the arts and creative industries because ultimately, if you think about the the perception that people have, if you work for a company, your boss still has to worry about paying you at the end of the month, Mm -hmm. still has to worry about how they're going to make money, still has to worry about how money is going to flow, ideas are going to flow, products or services are going to be sold, right? When you're a freelancer or you're, you're out on your own, that responsibility gets shifted from your boss to you. So there's always someone that's worrying and there's always someone that's having to make ends meet or having to make things function. So I think actually when we start to think about ourselves as freelancers or people working in the arts and creative industries, it's ultimately just a shift in responsibility and a willingness to try and engage and fail. I think some people have more of a safety net and more of a cushion to be able to do that. So it it is a real issue of can you afford to be involved? That's the old thing of... uh all the private school bands are the ones that got signed because they 
had someone backing them yep. while they were running around in a tour van getting paid nothing to exactly. play up and down to four people in a crowd yeah exactly yeah. Right. so i think we need to look at where our money is going where right. we're putting it and because we have so many challenges in the yeah. future i think we do need to be investing it in young people or people starting out it has nothing to do with age that want to do something in the creative sector or creative industries and also how we define creativity and what is a creative job needs to be expanded. I think we're having that conversation in the UK, but I think traditionally people have ideas around what it means to be creative or in a creative job. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a future that you seem to be interested in creating where more people are engaging with play, more people are designing the, the life they want to live, that they're collaborating um what what would you love to see that look like if you were to you know let's not say design it or play with that what would you love to see that look like in the next five or ten years and could you give us a bit of a picture of that well i mean we we do know that we keep talking about automation and machines and uh robots coming into play they're already here we're already designing them and what that means for jobs and growth and productivity and I think um if this this might be a quite radical statement to make but I think we we do need to look at our relationship to capitalism and productivity because Mm -hmm. even back to the question you asked earlier of why I do this why do we do these creative things what do we get out of it I've really had to spend a lot of time decoupling this idea of being productive from doing things for the sake of them. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to see a future where people um, can do things for the sake of doing it, not yeah. because they have to generate an income or survive. And if we're looking at more automation, which means freeing up more jobs or things being streamlined or systematized, I really don't think that's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I, I think, mm-hmm. of course, we'd need to get sharing resources sorted and everyone having shelter and food and water. Once those basics are addressed, um, having leisure time is important. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at some of the world's greatest thinkers and writers and poets, Lord Byron, there's so many examples um, that worked a four-hour work day, mm. you know, and my ideal world would be where I could work four hours a day, four days a week yeah, um, and have the space to fail and experiment and try and to share learning and to be in community and mm-hmm. not be so bent up and surviving and living in such an individualistic society that I can't enjoy and be in the presence of others. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the society I want to live in. I think we're moving towards that with having more space for collaboration, but that's the world I'd like to see mm. and one where the planet isn't burning up. <laughs> I, think I completely agree. Yeah, I think for me it's this idea of process and outcome if we can somehow I don't know how but lose our grip on outcomes as much Mm. and just give people more freedom to explore and explore in a way that doesn't follow one line of inquiry like this whole transmedial transdisciplinary thing whatever that's going to turn into um just explore ideas more widely somehow Mm. Mm -hmm. um and yeah that we're not always focusing on impact or and outcomes I know that yeah, to get funding and so much of our kind of, I guess the ecosystem of how the arts works has always had have to have those somehow. Mm. Um, but if there was a way that we could either kind of drop that or just loosen our grip on it a bit, mm. I think mm-hmm. I think that could be a, a really interesting space. Yeah, and is it yeah? It's like is there a way that over the next while, if people went really hard at an outcome they wanted, which is to <laughs> focus so hard on an outcome where you get to free yourself from all the outcomes that we'd land in a sort of interesting space or it's like go so hard at automation to the point that everybody just gets to be an artist right. in whatever sphere they'd like to do um seems a bit of a wild one but i think that's happening uh-huh. i mean uh-huh. even within this organization creative edinburgh we've been spending a lot of time looking at how we spend our time, how can we free up more headspace for thought Mm. and creativity and how do we create boundaries and barriers which enable us to support our membership or a membership organization. We support people that have creative ideas and want to pursue creative careers. We provide mentorship, we run inspirational events, but actually how do we set an example because the sector is running itself ragged and how do we take a step back, set the example, create space for ourselves, have boundaries that are healthy 
and able to enable us to move forward towards a place where we have space and time to play. Mm -hmm. So I do think actually the outcome, moving towards the outcome of freeing up space, of looking at time, of valuing ourselves and our inherent need for space and time to be creative, to explore, means that we're healthier and happier, but also allows us to move towards a future where everyone is maybe a bit healthier and happier and able to focus on on better outcomes. And I think this whole question of driving profits um, is shifting. It's not really working the right. way it was supposed to. Right. And I, I think without going towards one political ideology or another, I'm not, I, I think back to design, there's this incredible book by Tony Fry called Design as Politics. And I haven't finished it yet. This is quite a running joke between the three of us because every time I bring it up, I know that if I were to read it, it would blow my mind. So I'm taking my time. But Tony Fry is an Australian academic that talks about how we're currently in the age of enlightenment and resource use and depletion and this mindset of scarcity. And he talks about designing a world that would take us into the age of sustainment. And how do we design futures that allow us to live in a sustainable world um, but how do we actually flip the idea of design on its head to encourage and understand design as a process of creation mm, rather than something right. that just designers do? We're designing mm. our politics, we're designing our societies, our schools, our health system, our relationship to our bodies. How do we do this in a way that means actually we can live in an era of abundance and sustainment? Mm. It means that we have to look at the problems we're facing directly in the eye. We have to accept that there are limitations and problems we mm -hmm. need to solve. But once we do that and we look them straight in the eye and we're willing to address them, how do we create sustainability? Right. Yeah, and I guess almost bringing it full circle in in that context. And if we use design in that way, design becomes about how we understand and find and form meaning. Yeah. And that maybe is the element to this, maybe this crazy future that we're like thinking mm. about. It's actually, let's take that step back and actually understand the meaning of of these systems mm -hmm. and, and what they're doing to us and what we're doing to them and, and what it's doing to other people. Right. Yeah, some of the, some monks like uh, Richard Rohr talk about the idea of the next stage is how do we include and transcend at the same mm -hmm. time? How do we include all of the design elements that, that have got us to here, but how do we get above it yeah. Yeah. and get transcend that? How do you get all the meaning from it and also get no meaning from it at all yeah. and, mm. and start to move and include as much as we can of the different ecosystems and um, backgrounds of people and possibilities that we have? How do we get it all together and at the same time take a step back from it all? Yeah. Because yeah. Tony Fry and others talk about the process of defuturing. How do we create a future and design a future that is something else, but is not necessarily what we currently have? So if we're to design our future based on how we currently live, that would be a future and futuring. Right. But defuturing would be exactly that, looking at what we have, deconstructing it, honoring it, but transcending mm. it into mm. something else. Sure. Yeah, and I guess in some ways that, like, that's like, beautifully possible and impossible because yes. it's back to the perception we're stuck in our own world and we can never get out of that that's just how we exist like there's a really lovely quote I can't even remember it all but about how the world kind of dies in the perceptual field of its narrator mm -hmm. and I think if we are to move beyond those futures we in some ways we can't but that's the fun of it and that's what's interesting I think well, so uh, this has been really delightful <laughs> I, I really appreciate conversations about the future and with people who are making a dent in something right now and um, really observe that and I appreciate that a lot you you make a dent in people's thinking you, you do it with fun and grace and, and like I've experienced it firsthand and I know many people have so how, how can people connect with you if they're interested and, and see what you're doing and see what you're up to well, you can reach me through Creative Edinburgh and we have Instagram, Facebook, um, website, but we also run events. So mm -hmm. we've got a fortnightly Creative Circles, which is open to anyone. You can come and chat about creative ideas. Um, we're also involved in the Creative Informatics Partnership, which is a program running over the next three years, which is exploring data-driven innovation. Mm -hmm. And the creative industries, if you go to creativeinformatics.org, you can check out how to get involved with that. 
or you can approach us through Povo. Yeah, I think uh, the Povo email is still thinkpovo at gmail.com, something along what I said. There is no website or anything yet, we're still just, uh, just come chat to us, or um, to chat to me, uh, I think I'm Kathleen Snow Designs on Instagram, and or um, snowdesigns.co.uk, um, yeah, be great, or even the service design department at Tesco Bank. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time, and uh, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I really appreciate it. It'd mean a lot if you'd be up for leaving us a review, subscribing on your podcast app, and sharing the show with other people. We want to share what we're up to, get other people hearing about these ideas. As always, the intro music was crafted by Sam Gallagher, and the imagery is from Melody Joy Cole. Thanks for joining us.